Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Doug Lindsay, presented with a baffling inherited autonomic dysfunction, which was not recognized by his doctors at the time. Years of research conducted largely by Doug himself resulted in the solution, including a new surgery. Here to tell a story of incredible perseverance, bravery and resourcefulness is Doug Lindsay. Doug, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Yours is an incredible story. Before 1999, who were you, where were you, and where were your hopes and aspirations? And above all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Back in the late 90s, I was a college student. I was at a place called Rockhurst University. It's a small Catholic Jesuit college in the Midwest. And the Jesuits have a strong history of uh, education and outreach. And a lot of the universities are in the center of cities. And, and so was mine. It was in the center of Kansas City. And I had grown up in St. Louis, maybe several hours away by car, and traveled to Rockhurst for schooling. I was studying biology, and I had a sick mom. I grew up, and my, both my mother and my aunt, so my mother's sister, were sick uh, and disabled. And for the duration of my childhood and heading into my adult years, they really didn't have a diagnosis. I mean, they had an identified thyroid problem, and that just doesn't do the totality of what these two women were dealing with. So my mother was someone who wasn't able to, you know, is 40 years old and not able to open the front door of, of the house, you know, not strong enough to be able to do that. At one point, I was talking to my mom after she and I were both sick, and I asked her, Mom, when was the last time you could walk 500 feet without stopping? And she said, probably 1981. So that's the level of debility we're looking at. When I was young, I would go out and shoot baskets, play basketball in the neighborhood, but on my way out every summer, I would stop by my aunt's and tie her shoes because even though she's in her late 30s, she's somebody who's not able to bend down and tie her shoes. My mother and my aunt had muscle rigidity. So they had painful cramping muscles that were resistant to traditional treatments. And you couldn't give my either one of them a hug. It was the kind of position where if you had clapped your hands behind them or startled them, their muscles might tighten and it might take a week to loosen. And maybe they would never loosen. So. I was growing up around my disabled mother and my disabled aunt, but we were regular middle-class people trying to live a life and make a living and uh, never really referred to these people as disabled and didn't have that framework. If you think disabled equals wheelchair, then there you go. And eventually, my mom is going by wheelchair to doctors, and so that became a little clearer. But yeah, so I'm a regular college student studying biology because I love animals. And the summer after my freshman year in college, I went to Washington University's uh, medical library. This is a, a fantastic top 10 med school here that does a lot of research and, and is known globally. And I tried to see if I could do anything for my mom. So I started looking things up and I wasn't even able to read the titles. I read English plenty well, but this didn't seem like English. It was just jargon. And so that was a wake-up call. But something happened. My sophomore year, I ended up taking a year of organic chemistry and comparative anatomy. Junior year, I'm in a year biochemistry, cell biology, genetics. These were different. And so I took a summer biochemistry research position after my junior year. That was just intended because I guess if I had to pick a job, I was probably going to be a biochemistry professor. Initially, I thought I'd love to work with wolves. 
And my advisor steered me on this path, even though I wasn't, you know, a lot of biology majors weren't taking this kind of chemistry and such, and I didn't want to go to med school. But it, so there I was, and, and I really liked this stuff. It felt like three-dimensional chess, and it was elegant to see that these are the processes by which all life on Earth is getting energy. So what was beautiful, I, I take a year of organic chemistry, and I get to struggle in the lab. It took me 11 hours to try and get caffeine from tea leaves. So then when I'm in biochemistry and I'm watching these aldehydes turn to ketones, turn to this, turn to, and, and watching these things dance in front of me, they may be dancing on the page, but I know they're happening in our bodies. I was struck with awe and figured there was probably a God because I figured if you took a box of this stuff and let it sit for a billion years, nothing would happen. And if you took me and gave me a lab and it took me 11 hours to try and get caffeine from tea leaves, and yet all of this stuff was playing out at a cellular level all over the globe in all organisms, it was something that struck me with a sense of awe. And it was also something that I wanted to be a part of. So that's kind of where I was headed. But when I took the project the summer research project, I also took it with an eye to getting the background I might need to help my mom. I'm interested to hear about your mom because I would imagine that her doctors were very frustrated at not being able to make a diagnosis or work out what was going on. I can imagine 200 years ago she would have been called hysterical because that's the label we gave to people who we could not understand. How was healthcare responding to her needs at that time? My mother was an artist. She could copy any painting you put in front of her. She learned that. And then she was a really creative person. So we have this tiny boat that we have because when she was in sixth grade, she built a ship like Columbus's ship or something out of meat skewers, popsicle sticks, and toothpicks. And so the masts are meat skewers, and the, the planking are toothpicks, and the boards for the ship are popsicle sticks. And she built this thing, and then she varnished it, and then she used a glue to turn the handkerchiefs from my grandfather into the sails. And so she was, she was capable and careful and creative. And she also was pretty smart. So when she got to college and saw that she probably didn't have a future as an artist in terms of career. She became a math and chemistry double major, and she became the research assistant for the head of the biochemistry department at WashU. So she'd worked there for five years or so and had gave birth to me and was unable to work after that. She was just too sick. And she struggled to get care. And you turn to doctors for help and they could find something. You know, they gave her a shot of histamine and brought on cluster headaches, which is lovely that they could provoke that and thereby diagnose it. But they're not called suicide headaches because they're fun. So she was toiling and struggling with lots of health conditions, but it doesn't show up in the records because the exam room is what, 15 feet by 15 feet. And she's living her life. Her life may be laying in the backseat of the car to go to the doctor while my grandfather drives her, but the jet doesn't show up in the records either. You know, I asked her that question because I didn't have an answer. And, and, and at one point, I read a thousand pages of her records and digitized them and pulled the hundred best ones and built something that I could use to get doctors up to speed. But the lived experience that she had is nowhere in the records because she was powerful enough to get around that tiny room. She could squeeze their fingers and stand on her toes for a millisecond and then collapse later. And so she struggled to get a diagnosis. She got all of her records together to go to the Mayo Clinic. And that's when she was able to piece together that her T4 was dropping her thyroid blood level, but her TSH, the hormone that says, give me more, was not rising. And so she was able to diagnose the, she got diagnosed with a secondary or tertiary thyroid problem with something arising not at the gland because of her own work. And so I'm a child and I have now observed 
that this person was able to find something the doctors missed. And in the journey I ended up on, that became pretty darn important. It was a challenge. She started getting better with thyroid medication, and she started writing a book called Medicine, S-I-N. And she did the illustrations for the book that described the patient experience. And this is in the 1980s. And if you see them today, one, they'd probably make you cry, but two, they're still applicable. But there was no patient movement. There was no internet. There was nothing else. There was just this person who was sort of calling out through her experience, and there was no system to engage with. And then as she got worse, she just was easier to dismiss. So they had no answers, and I was going to see if I could help if the, the chance ever arose, and that's when I got sick. That I took the summer biochemistry research position. I came down with what the doctors told me was mono. I spent the summer at home resting, hoping to get better, and I just did not. And you plateau and sort of crawl around all summer waiting to, to see if you get your health back. And then instead of improving, I dropped further. I declined further. I made it the one day of my senior year, and then I had to drop out. And I had to make the phone call to my mom. And basically, that it was clear to her and clear to me that I had something more than mono. And given that that was the case, I likely had what she had and what my aunt had. A disease with no name and a grim future. You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. But that's not what happened because somehow fate had placed you in a position of getting all of this information. You can almost see how it was preparing you. So tell us in your own words, what happened next? When I become ill, there was a doctor who was nice to my mom and who certainly had pity for her plight and who had seen me as a teenager because I had struggled to be able to compete in sports just with the stamina and durability. Now we would call it a subclinical condition, but that's in hindsight. And so I went to this doctor and we wanted to see what we could do. And we tried thyroid medications and he sent me to specialists and Oh, I saw neurologists and, you know, endocrinologists and other folk and, and workups were other than the thyroid problem that was marginal. Everything was basically fine except for me. So I'm laying at home on the floor with the room spinning and my heart pounding, feeling like someone had run a cheese grater over my forearms and in pain and no real answers. And we're seeing the doctors and they're striking out and... I took up fly fishing in high school, and my mentor was a guy who owned the fly shop. And the fly shop looked like every other. It was just two, three rooms of, of a store, but it was a national mail order catalog because he didn't want to be scraping by and hoping. So in the 50s, he started working with hunters and getting pelts and processing. He built this business and sent out a mail order catalog, which was a very innovative thing in a field where the people who fish it live far away from where they fish. So where do you find the customers? So he let them find him. And, and what he said to me was, if you want to make what everyone else makes, you can do what everyone else does. But if you want to make something different, you're going to have to do something different. Now, he was talking about salary and business and explaining why he founded Feathercraft and made it mail order, as well as a small physical shop. But that came back to me. My parent, my mom and my aunt had seen doctors for 30 years with no answer. And so I, sh I cut that process short. When there were no answers, I decided to take the lead and become the, the lead researcher in my own condition. I was a science literate person. I'd seen my mom come up with something. But in medicine, when there's no answers, you said, with the doctors, it must be very frustrating, and it is. But in science, there's never an answer, or you wouldn't have started this journey. If you, if you knew, then you're just repeating someone else's experiment in which there's value, but part of science is doing original work. And so I tackled my problem like a scientist, 
And what that meant was I'm someone laying on the floor at home reading anything he can get his hands on. But when I worked for the high school newspaper, we printed it on newsprint. And I walked away with the belief that the only difference between us and the New York Times is what we put on the page because it was all the same newsprint. Now, it turned out it wasn't. They had better paper than us, but that was okay. But the thrust was a journalist is a way of moving through the world, a way of operating. And a scientist is the same. A person in a laboratory in a building is not what makes you a scientist. It is because you use the scientific method, you use inquiry, you're searching for the truth, and you believe in running the experiment. And so those pieces guided me as I started this, and it turns out that that's a different skill set than is in play in practicing medicine, and that there would be a chance for us to work together at times, but also to be in opposition, and that be okay. Because everyone could believe or not believe what I was saying, but if the results would be clear if we ran the experiment, then they all had very well-informed opinions, but they were still just opinions. As you say, if it's not in the textbook of medicine, the science has not advanced sufficiently. Eventually it gets there, but somebody has to take the first step. And how did you take the first step? Before I got sick, that literal semester, I had taken a physiology class. So I actually had a good chunk of heart rate, blood pressure, and body temperature data from pre-illness. And my body temperature is down one full degree, even though I'm on large amounts of Synthroid. I am waking up with a 97.3 or 96.8 body temperature, and I was 97.6 to 98 just a couple months earlier. So what's going on? So I start chasing these things and I start paying attention to my body and I'm reading the physiology text. I went to my mom's endocrinologist appointment for some guy that she'd been waiting to see. She was too sick to go. And when he couldn't help me, I said, that's okay, man. Here's how you can help me. And he took me into his office and he showed me a 2000 page tome, an endocrinology text. And I bought it. My aunt paid for it and I read it. And I, had, I did the same thing with pharmacology. I got a text and I read it too. And I was looking for something that obviously I figured the doctors had missed and that was rare. And I theorized that there were likely chronic conditions that involved dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, but weren't shy drager and killing, you know, fatal or pure autonomic failure or something. And so I, I basically said, look, the way my body's responding, I'm guessing that there's an entire class of these autonomic problems. And I took this around, wrote it up, pulled passages from the texts that I could, you know, that weren't directly related to that, but that were indicative of something in this order. And at that time, in 2000, in 2001, the doctors said to me, problems like you described don't exist. And I said, but they could because doctors practice by experience. And so if you don't know anyone who treats these kinds of problems, I mean, endocrinology lives in the endocrinology department. But to me, the idea that there was a complex system in the body and not much that could go wrong with it, that didn't make any sense either. So we were looking at it from different perspectives. And when I was able to get a computer with internet access, which was basically Let's see, I would say a year and a half after I got sick, I finally get a computer with internet access. I read about Google in the newspaper. That tells you where we are in the continuum. And within a month, I find a nonprofit devoted to chronic autonomic disorders, the kind of things I contended existed and were told did not. And I, I contact them and, and they confirm that, hey, I'm not crazy. And hey, this is that's right. And, and that real centers, all around the world are looking into these things, but not many. And then they're able to send me the articles from the field. And now I have the lexicon of the field. So instead of saying horseless carriage or something like that, I can say car and automobile. I was describing it as a sympathetic nervous system insufficiency. Okay, that's fine. That's a perfectly accurate term. But the search results were a lot better when I chose dysautonomia, which was what the field was using. So that was a game changer. My friends had gone on to medical school because they'd finished college instead of getting sick. 
And now I could send them citations and they could send me the articles. And when I would get stuck, I would write the authors. And if I couldn't get it, they would send me. And I saw all these doctors and I was complaining to people. And I say, look, I go and I say, here's what I think's going on. And they say, we don't know and we don't care and we don't believe you. And one of the people I talked to was a, a G-protein basic science professor. And he said to me, instead of just going, gee, that's rough, he said, yeah, well, you're interfacing with the world of practicing medicine, and you need to be connecting with the world of research medicine. And research medicine is an amorphous blob, and there's no front door. Now, that doesn't sound very encouraging, but that's the same thing as saying every time I get on the horse, he runs backwards, and you say, no, you're facing the wrong way. So this was a game changer because I happened to see that there was an abstract call for the American Autonomic Society, and I wrote up an abstract describing potentially under-recognized features of autonomic dysfunction and tying it to a phenomenon which, for whatever reason, sympathetic activity is not enough to prevent the development of symptoms. I write this up and I submit it, and whether it was angels or God or or the fact that I lived in University City, which to someone from Italy who was chairing the organization sounds like a university, my abstract was accepted. And as a 24-year-old college dropout in a reclining wheelchair who'd been sick now for four years, I was actually on my way to present to a world gathering of researchers who care about autonomic dysfunction. When I was told there was no front door, it meant that I had to look for something. And this was a world gathering of all the people who care about this, these kind of problems. So that's why I was so bent on taking the chance, buying up a row of airline seats, laying across all these things, having friends push me in a reclining wheelchair, because Murray Essler is in Australia, but he would be in the, in the room where I was. Jens Jordan is in Germany, but he would be here in the same place. And so I could get to this world gathering because what I learned is that if you think of being a practicing physician like a pyramid, a physician is one and he or she treats many conditions, many, many, even if they're a specialist. But in research medicine, it's an inverted pyramid. You have an entire lab that studies one protein. And so that meant that there would be all of these people and that maybe only a few would care enough about something like my corner of autonomic dysfunction to be moved. And if I could meet them all at once, maybe I could find the needle in the haystack. We're assuming in all of this that the people with the condition that you are describing are so rare that they exist in the tens among millions of people. There's another possibility that in fact there are hundreds rather than tens and that the reason we don't know it is because they are hidden in plain sight. And often they're hidden in plain sight because we ascribe all kinds of other explanations to why they are the way they are. And one of the things that we often do as doctors is say, well, it's all psychological, and if only we delve deep enough, we'll find the psychological reason for this person's lack of interest, lack of energy. It's all related to that. And medicine has done a disservice to people by framing the narrative in that way. From your perspective now, and from those conferences that you were going to, was that something that was being talked about? So as skilled as I was at eventually arranging for the care I needed, one of my other skills was avoiding other care. I would avoid, we mentioned WashU, wonderful place. If I had had my autonomic evaluation, my tilt table test run at WashU, they would have been looking for syncope, not for other more subtle, but not subtle at all. If your heart rate 170 and you're sweating, but then they go, good news, you're normal. No. So I avoided care that would have put me in a box. I avoided the label of chronic fatigue syndrome because it gave doctors a chance not to think. 
I avoided this, and I came up with things that I could put in front of doctors and say, okay, there's a someone might contend that I have the blues. Show me how the blues would turn my feet blue from venous pooling. Because dysautonomias do that, and they're real. And here's Vanderbilt's articles on them. And, and so you needed to find physicians who were willing to participate and accept the answers you could give them when you pointed to a physical problem. But the other challenge was, for the duration of my illness, I had to avoid any mental health care. Because if you ask a sculptor for art, you're going to get sculpture. And, and so I could not give someone else a pen to write my narrative. That meant that whatever was out there was as off limits to me because it was a minefield. And so I avoided care that would have boxed me in. I avoided labels that would have boxed me in. And I had to find clinician collaborators who were willing to see a physical problem in front of them and willing to accept evidence of that physical problem. So if you're having muscle spasms, but it's smaller than a motor unit, you're saying, look, look at this twitching. As you and I know, I could not control this even if I wished. Look at this postperandial tachycardia. You know, I ate a meal and my heart rate jumps up and you give me medications to raise my blood pressure and, and they're barely enough. So I was able to craft a, this is a broken body narrative and then avoid people that would box me in elsewhere. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. You are describing barn door physiological dysfunction, which can be explained in physiological terms, but cannot be explained in pathological terms. And what we often have missed is the physiological nuances that may have been taught to us by some professor in some lab when we were at med school, but is not something that has become bread and butter to us in our clinical practice. Eyes and needles and camels come to mind in what you are describing as what you managed to achieve by going down the route that you have. Because you were actually saying, I'm not going to be labeled as having chronic fatigue. I'm not going to be labeled as having something else. And by dint of that, I'm going to step away from the care that could be provided to me, even though it would be very nice to have that care, because if I get that label, I'm done because I will have to live with that label and the implications of that label in terms of my healthcare and my insurance and all the rest of it. You stood in line until you were served the correct treatment. So tell us how that happened. So in my presence at the conference, I met a doctor named H. Cecil Coughlin. He was the director of the Autonomic Nervous System Laboratory at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. So this is a major research university. It's a public university. And Coughlin was from Chile, and he had come to the States. And he was there, and he and I struck up a, a kinship of interest in science. And initially, I was hoping that he would be able to advise a local physician. I'd come up with a proposed treatment. That was part of my paper there. That got tried, and I ended up with a modified suggestion, which you may fall off your seat, but the suggestion was a continuous low-dose Levofed infusion aimed at raising peripheral vascular resistance to prevent me from having an uncontrolled fast heart rate and hoping that as the actual hormone from the body, norepinephrine, that it would be more effective and it, at balancing its interactions with the various adrenergic receptors than any drug that I could pull off the shelf. Well, Coughlin had recalled a study that the NIH had done for people with pure autonomic failure and with, with very serious conditions where Levofed had been able to restore their ability to walk a thousand feet instead of passing out instantly, these kind of things. And so he just had a different background because he'd done special testing 
on these agonists with the pharmaceutical companies back in Chile and Argentina when they were being developed. And so he had an experience that was more akin to mine. I was viewing it as a physiologist instead of Levafed leaves them dead, which is the jingle that everyone knows about this medication. And yet it's in every person at every moment because it's norepinephrine. And so again, that adage of the poison or medicine is in the dose, that was what happened. So Coglin is now five years into my illness, I'm able to travel and get an evaluation by somebody who's going to recognize the problem if it's there and who's running an adequate number of tests to detect the problem. So I had to become expert at the methodologies of all these tests to evaluate what a center could offer before stepping into the office. So Coglin runs the tests, comes back with a severe dysautonomia, comes back later still and says, looking at these numbers, you may have an adrenaline-producing non-cancerous tumor, and if we find it and take it out, maybe your life gets better. So this is amazing, but then he and I then spend the next year looking for this tumor and we don't find it. But the Levofed infusion has halted my decline. I'm still bedbound 22 hours a day, but I'm not getting worse. And I'm able to do more work on the computer. I'm laying on my back, I write with dictation software, and Coughlin is willing to back me, but we don't have any more ideas. So I turn to the literature. I turn to the NIH's medical library and PubMed, how you search for journal articles. And I basically ask the question, is there anything that creates the symptoms of an adrenaline tumor, but that wouldn't have been detected by the tests we'd run? And I came up with three conditions within a few months of, of sleuthing around. And we then the question was, how in goodness gracious do you find these? It took he and I a year of false starts, looking at research studies that were closed or wouldn't fit. Sometimes the study had the imaging agent we needed to study my adrenal gland, but there was a series of if-thens before it. I had to, to show symptoms in all these other ways or tests before I could get the imaging agent. Sometimes they'd say, stop your medicines for 60 days before you come. And I would say, who's going to bring my mom breakfast? Because I was the primary caregiver for my mom before she ended up in the nursing home. And so we had this, this push and pull with the medical system. And Coughlin and I settle on an imaging agent. We get this scan and my adrenal glands come back lit up just like an adrenaline tumor, even though the CAT scan doesn't show any mass. So the way for people to understand this is imagine flying over the Midwest at night and you see Chicago, all the lights, and then flying back the next morning and you look out the window and you just see corn. So we saw normal adrenal glands, but abnormal function. And that was compatible with these very rare conditions in which the adrenal gland, the adrenal medulla was behaving like a tumor, but wasn't one. Now we know it's wrong. We know. And Coughlin is confident. Okay, the next step is surgery. Well, it's both adrenal glands, and we can't prove the surgery will help me, but we know if we pull both adrenal glands that I'll get sicker because I'll have adrenal insufficiency. So now I face the challenge of if doctors have taken an oath to do no harm and the best surgery available will give me a new disease, but we can't prove it will cure the debilitating one I have. We have put all of us in a spot. I don't want it to get worse. They don't want to make me worse. What do we do? That's when I decided I would invent a surgery if there wasn't one. Can I ask you a technical question? Why not simply remove your adrenal glands and become effectively Addisonian? Yeah, so my thyroid condition is not normal, right? I'm, it's, it involves the pituitary, the hypothalamus, something. It's, it's, so, so Douglas and clinician are managing thyroid. Now Douglas is managing Levofed. He's, he has taken some of the reins of the sympathetic and parasympathetic balance, he and his clinician. And I'm looking at him saying, golly, the only things that work well you know, our, our aldosterone and, and cortisol. And, and if I goof those up, I might die. So I'm looking and saying, you know, I'd prefer to begin giving back control of endocrine systems to my body rather than trying to become them again. 
So when you look at the world, you see that a wolf has many advantages over a German shepherd because the German shepherd is mankind's wolf. It's the best we've been able to do. But the wolf doesn't have hip dysplasia and has a stronger bite because nature does a better job than just 100 years of people trying. So I looked and said, I'd really like to figure out a way to avoid this. And I was willing to remain sick and disabled because I knew I was playing for a lifetime. So the challenge is take out the middle of the adrenal gland and leave the outside. But the surgeries that existed to do partial adrenalectomies, they were like taking a slice of pizza. So imagine a baseball lands on a pizza and they take the slice of pizza with the baseball. That's what they do. They take a slice of the adrenal gland with the tumor and leave the rest. They don't try and take the yolk out of a hard-boiled egg, but the adrenal gland isn't the shape of any of those. I mean, take an undershirt, wad it up, throw it on the ground, and that's kind of the shape of the adrenal gland. It's a triangle shape. Oh, you wouldn't get out of kindergarten drawing triangles like that. Okay, so the answer is to remove the center of your adrenal gland. And that was going to be tricky. But one of the other things that fascinates me about all of this is now years have gone by since you were first ill. You would have had muscle wasting. You would have had profound fatigue. You were spending 22 hours a day in bed. And yet you were functioning like a PhD on steroids, if you pardon the expression. You were functioning as somebody who was working in a lab and on a very exciting project and potentially could have won the Nobel Prize for for this discovery, because effectively you discovered something that could be the answer to a lot of people's problems and a whole new way of looking at people who had the symptoms that you were describing. How did you do that? How did you manage to keep yourself, body and soul together? When you read about science, you always find that the exception to the rule that teaches us something. And I lived out at the exception that was able to show that minimal activity and no activity are dramatically different. When my mom went into the nursing home, she ended up with contractures because there was we didn't know about passive range of motion. We didn't know that contractures existed. And she had muscle rigidity, and it was a challenging way to think of how to move those limbs anyway. We can show what no activity, when she became bedbound, like that happened. So we know what happens when someone doesn't move. But minimal movement, my ability to walk 50 feet, my ability to get to the bathroom and back, to shower as the most athletic thing I did in a week, to sit for the duration of a meal. When things started to go my way and I started to get better, I couldn't sit up straight without back support for 30 seconds. That's how weak I was. But I managed to keep full range of motion. I certainly lost muscle mass, but I was not skeletal or something. And so there was a situation where at least youth and maybe enough food or something, but the minimal activity that I was able to muster was enough to keep a body that was able to keep in the fight and then eventually rebuild from. Now we've got this challenge of removing the center of the adrenal. And there was no surgery to do that. And people thought it was impossible. And for a year, I came up empty. I, at one point, I sent the Japanese ambassador's son to Tokyo with my medical records to talk with surgeons there because I needed someone who spoke medical Japanese because they had a particularly skilled team of partial adrenalectomy surgeons over there. And the doctor who was here at Washington University going to law school in English after medical school in Japanese, so smart guy, he actually met with me and went back to where he'd done his residency and met with these people on my behalf. I was shaking the tree. My main advisor on bioethics, because I knew I needed to invent a surgery, that this required understanding the ethical landscape, was the chairman of the President's Council on Biomedical Ethics. He was at Georgetown in D.C., another Jesuit school. And, and for six years, while I was a disabled homebound college dropout, he was my bioethics advisor. He connected me with other people. In the end, I ended up working with 35 senior faculty at 28 places to get the answers we needed. But I first found that the surgery that was supposed to be impossible in me was possible in rats. And so I contacted the basic scientist who'd done it, and, and he said they sliced into the gland and with a razor blade and squeezed until the middle 
popped out like a pimple. And so I passed that along to the human surgeons and they weren't excited. And then it turned out that the history of science department at Harvard could help me because in 1926, the surgery I needed, take out the middle of the adrenal gland and leave the outside, had been done there in cats by one of their pioneers of physiology. And so we worked to see if we could figure out how we did it and we couldn't, but we, I even talked to the guy's biographer. And so we were really shaking the trees and Oregon Health Sciences University had done the surgery in 1940 on dogs, but they didn't explain how they did it in the journal article. It was a fascinating and frustrating thing to be laying at home and know that this surgery was so routine to some of these people that basic scientists could do it and that people could write an article without explaining how they did it on dogs in 1940, but the world's best human surgeons were stumped today. And so you just say, you got to keep with it because I could have looked at it as a failure. I've looked and no one can explain it, but I looked at it as a partial success because it showed the surgery was scalable. Nine ounce rat, nine pound cat, 60 pound dog. That's like a third grade kid. Now we're into the human realm. And I talked with comparative anatomy people, people who'd studied the adrenals of cows and rats and everybody in between. So I sought out all this info and I kept working. I actually had my high school French teacher translate my letter into, Fr into French so I could fax it to the nurse's station that was closest to the doctor who'd done the surgery on dogs in France in the 70s. And at the same time I was waiting for the reply on that, a medical librarian at, health, at Oregon Health Sciences University found an article from 1923 where they'd done the surgery on dogs. And she sent it to me and we got two article, two sources of confirmation of how to do this surgery on a dog whose adrenals is, are a lot like a human's. And so now we'd sort of cracked the case of saying it should be possible in people. What happened next? Just because I proved that the surgery should be feasible in a human doesn't mean that it's a clinically wise choice. Doesn't mean that it will help me. So there were so many hurdles. And there was actually an article written in the newspaper, 7,500 words, a long in-depth feature in which one of the top surgeons basically went through that process in the paper. He said, you know, maybe there might be a way to do it, but even then would it help? And geez, look at the risks. And so we really struggled. And eventually, Dr. Coughlin was able to prevail upon the surgeon at UAB that does adrenalectomies and make the clinical case, this should help this young man. And the head of endocrine surgery at U Chicago had a little bit of a breakthrough. He and I were talking and he said, look, if you're really as sensitive to adrenaline as, as it seems, as you, guys, you and Dr. Coughlin believe, then maybe you could start with one gland. See, if you have two normal adrenal glands and take one out, the patient's life doesn't change much at all. And if you have two normal adrenaline tumors and you take one out, because the adrenaline tumor spits adrenaline in the blood anytime it wants, the patient's not half better. So we were looking at how to consider this surgery and we needed that twist to say, Let's look at a new model. Let's try one gland and let's see if we get a, a, a clinical improvement. Let's see if it budges the case. And so the surgeon at UAB was willing to take the risk and do the surgery. He did the surgery. He pulled out the whole gland because it started to bleed as he was taking the middle and things got a little hairy. And so we didn't know what would happen, but we knew we'd removed the tissue we wanted out on one side. And then we just had to wait and see. And three weeks after the surgery, I could now sit for three hours instead of three, four, five, six, eight minutes, a length of a quick meal. And now I can sit for the length of a very long movie. And then I started being able to walk further. And so I would walk further every day. I would walk at night because I was so slow. I couldn't get out of the way of anything. And I couldn't communicate to cars like, it's gonna take me a while to get across the street. So I would walk at night until I was able to walk a bit further. And it was this mental hurdle because for 11 years, I'd been able to throw a snowball further than I could walk. And now I was trying to rebuild my ability, but everything in my mind, everything in my brain, everything in my body said, 
that place you're looking at walking is too far away and it's dangerous. And I had to think of those old rulers that handymen used to carry around. They're wooden and they're jointed. And I could say, if I can walk from here to there and back, then I could unfold that and walk twice as far. And if I'm tired, I could just sit in the grass. And so that's how I was able to use, if I could walk here and back, here and back, that's four times. I could unfold that and walk all the way around the block. And that's how I was able to build the confidence in my growing abilities when I started to recover was by mentally proving something and then expanding that and kept growing. And if I just kept doing more every chance I got, a little more, then I wouldn't overdo and hurt my ankle and be laid up again. Or, you know, I, I just knew eventually I'd either keep getting better or run into some limitations. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. So at this point, you've lost one adrenal gland, or at least they've removed one adrenal gland. You left with another. Did they go after the second one? So this was a story in clinical bravery, because the first gland, we could afford to lose the whole thing and do no harm to me. But I plateaued and I was stuck. I, now I could walk four miles. I could walk out of my house in the middle of winter, walk more than two miles and walk two miles back. And it was amazing, but it didn't translate into the durable health needed to be active all day, to go to school, to try and get a job. I could rally and expend energy and I could do push-ups, and I did all I could to maximize the health from the first surgery. And one of the surgeons said to me that if I was still struggling after a year, he would find that compelling. So I circled September 17th in the calendar and knew that I wasn't going to reach out to any surgeons until a year because doctors train each other. And so this is what he would find compelling. He is a good model for what his colleagues will find compelling. If I reach out to them at 11 months, they'll go, ah, give it a little. After a year, I had something to talk about. And it gave me time to truly exhaust all rehab kind of options that I could come up with. And, and say, yes, I'm still struggling. So after that, we had lessons learned from the first surgery. I got my slides from the first surgery digitized so people could look at them in different parts of the country. I built a digital model of the adrenal gland we pulled with anatomical directions so that people could have a conversation with each other. Because glass slides, you and I can't even look at them at the same time in the same room unless we look through the lens. And, and I met with doctors and doctors hate slides. And so I was able to also ferret out all the reasons they hated slides. And so I was able to build a digital model that addressed most of their concerns and gave them the info they needed to study the gland we'd already removed. And basically I found the surgeon at Washington University who I'd met with for probably almost six years now. The first four years I would come in in a wheelchair and, and he was, he'd talk to me and we were, you know, we were building a relationship, but he'd say no. And I'd go home. The fifth year I walk in and I'm like, sorry, I'm late. Traffic's tough. He sees a man who was in a wheelchair on a Levifed infusion, walk in under his own power. And all I wanted was a bit of help to try and go back to school and build a life. And he found the results of the first surgically clinically, my improvement compelling enough to say that he would step up and do the second surgery. And because we'd been meeting for years, these surgeons, they're learning creatures. If you're doing the same surgery 25 years now that you did 25 years ago, you're out of business. So surgeons are learning. And so these guys that I was continually in touch with had the benefit of operating, the benefit of doing adrenal surgeries, but with our conversations, existing in their mind. They're able to look at the gland and walk through how they might do it over the span of years. And so Dr. Brunt, a surgeon here at Washington University, he agreed to do the second surgery. He goes in laparoscopically. He removes medulla. He leaves intact a living cortex. 
that cortex took over a year to grow into something that was fully adequate. But a year after the second surgery, I passed a, a stimulation test to show that I had a, a fully functional adrenal remnant. And so here I am, 11 years homebound and bedbound. The first surgery breaks the dam and, and gets me moving and walking. And the second surgery was a 14-month recovery, balancing medicines and stuff. But it worked out well enough that I was able to go back to school and, and start looking at building something that looks an awful lot like a normal life. How are you today, having been through all of this, would you say that you are as good as you're going to get? I think that there's still improvement to come. I'm looking at the implications. So again, my autonomic nervous system is a little different than other folks. It is still pretty hyper-responsive, but I've also been through truly challenging 14 years of illness, and my home life was a challenge. I was a caregiver for my mom. So things like polyvagal theory and some of the more recent learnings and characterizations of how the autonomic nervous system works into to safety and well-being and how that contributes to overall health is something that I'm excited about capitalizing on. And it turns out it's in an area that I at least have been familiar with for, for now 20 years. And so it's exciting because it's a little like Rudolph. 1999, I can go to major academic centers and say there's subtler chronic dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system and it's ruining people's lives like mine and have people tell me that, I'm, that it doesn't exist. And now 20 years later, I can pick up a paper and they describe not something like POTS, which is a diagnosable thing that you pick up in the lab, but the true implications of safety, danger, and stress on cellular response and organ systems and well-being and health. And so it's kind of something that was forgotten and uncared about now ends up at the center of medicine in an emerging way, and I'm there paying attention to it. So that's what I'm doing for me. But when I worked with E.D. Pellegrino, the, the chairman of the President's Council on Biomedical Ethics, I was impressed that he had an integrated philosophy of medicine that he could live out by helping me, a sick kid at home, and at a societal level. And that was so inspiring to me that it wasn't that he's good to his children and mean to the world or that he's this and that. His integrated philosophy of medicine was both compassionate and just really impressive. And it has spurred me to take an active role. I just wrapped up a three-year stint as co-chair of PCORI's Rare Disease Advisory Panel. So this is the government, U.S. government created an organization to fund research studies on behalf of patients, patient funder, rather than pharma or labs and science nerds. Who's speaking and funding for the patient? Well, that was us. And so I was able to be co-chair of that and, and to do something regularly to say, is there anything we can do to better the lives of the 25 million Americans with rare diseases? And so I do that. I work with Washington University and their public health and translational research institutes. I was an advisor to the NIH on one of their international COVID trials representing rare disease and concerns about long COVID. I'm trying to make a difference in a system so that the people who end up in difficult straits don't have to do what I did to get treated. Because you said something earlier about, like, is my condition really as rare as everyone is thinking? What was rare is what I was able to do to partner with physicians to get diagnosed and get unstuck when we got stuck. I think there's a lot of people struggling in ways that aren't dissimilar to what I went through. They just don't have the diagnoses we need. And so we're working on ways to characterize that. We're going to get some additional sequencing to see if we could come up with a genetic test so that people don't have to go through complicated testing that's hard to interpret. And then there's one other thing I do, and that is, it took me a while. I became a speaker. I travel. I give speeches about innovation and hope and these things that really mattered to me, that powered me when I was sick. I talk about a definition of hope that is the belief that something positive can happen. It doesn't mean you have to do it. It doesn't mean it solves all your problems. 
But if you have that orientation, the belief that something positive can happen, you're looking for chances for something good to happen, and that can help you win. But when I was out on the road, everyone who comes up to me after a speech, they don't say, come talk to my company. They say, I want to tell you about my neighbor's wife. I want to tell you about my son. I want to tell you about my grandfather. And they tell me what they're going through. And so I am a I have become a personal medical consultant. And families, very small number, are able to hire me. And I join their family for a year and see if we can budge their case and see if we can get them unstuck. Because if, if you've seen a lot of doctors and you have means and you're out of options, what do you do? And so these families that I work with let me also just try and help people that just send me an email and, or, and say, hey, man, I don't know what to do. So we probably help about 10 times as many people for free as could ever hire us. And this creates a, a continuing conversation at all levels of healthcare organization, from in-depth with one family all the way to public health and in between. And that keeps me well-informed and learning and growing and then pushing for the kind of world that, that you and I value, which is where physicians and patients can collaborate and where empathy is, is at the forefront in both directions and where the doctor-patient relationship is the fundamental component of clinical medicine and everything else understands that it's there to support that relationship. And then just getting a better shake for people to say, hey, if every doctor learns when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, just remember, zebras do exist. And if there's 25 million rare disease patients in America, doctors are seeing rare disease patients every week. They're just not seeing each individual rare disease because the rare disease community doesn't know it's a community. They're still tracked out on their one allele, their one defect, their one mutation, their 100, their tiny groups. And to get progress for all those tiny groups, we need to remember that rare disease is a community half the size of France in population or so, just in the U.S., and that we deserve to be part of the improvement efforts that are coming in terms of equity and inclusion. That the efforts that all these hospitals have to serve underserved communities better they need to have a conversation so that they include rare disease in that. Because right now, they're trying to help people, and rare disease is the most pathetic health disparity. Six or seven year diagnostic journeys on average, 95% of rare diseases have no approved treatment. Those are startling, and at the rate of treatments being approved and being recognized and coming online, it will take 2,000 years, according to the head of the NIH's Translational Research Center, for these 7,000 rare diseases to get treatments. So when you see that that's the landscape of rare disease, you see that when I have a chance to show up and represent them and push and try and get the system to pay better attention and serve these, this population better, it's what I would want for all the people who have to live through something that looks anything like what I had to do. I want to reflect to you what it feels like from the other end, from the point of view of a physician seeing a patient whose symptoms you cannot explain, but the signs don't match the history. There's something going on that you cannot explain. It takes someone like you who is uncompromising, resourceful, who understands Medical Innovation 101 to rewrite the textbooks on which we rely in order to provide the care that we offer and how healthcare can respond to people in a way that's compassionate. As you say, 25 million people with long diagnostic odysseys. We all say, above all else, do no harm. Every single day we do harm inadvertently by sticking labels on that do not fit the problem, by not harking back to the science, because we simply do not have an understanding of how that science could answer the question that they have come to us with. Doug Lindsay, this has been our longest conversation on the podcast to date, and it has been a joy spending time with you. 
we wish you all the very best and a full and complete recovery in time to come. I think you have an awful lot more work to do and I for one will be watching this space. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Dr. Jiwa. I'm excited to have been a guest. I love what you are trying to spotlight and do. And I think you bring on important voices. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say my friend John Novak says hello. The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. Thank you.